You're listening to Meeting Pod, the podcast powered by Meeting Place, the premier magazine and news source for the meat and poultry processing industry, and Alt Meat Magazine, the only business information resource for the exploding alternative meat industry. Today's episode of Meeting Pod is sponsored by ComputerWay. Welcome. I'm Chris Scott, host of Meeting Pod and contributing editor at Meeting Place and Altmeet Magazines. Today we're going to discuss history-making research that has the potential to address what is expected to be overwhelming demand for protein on a global basis within the next few decades. Our guest is Dr. John Oatley, Associate Dean for Research at the College of Veterinary Medicine and a professor in the School of Molecular Biosciences at Washington State University. He and his team of researchers focus on the role of biotechnology in food animal production and recently successfully edited the genes of pigs that produced the first food product to win U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval for human consumption. Dr. Oakley will discuss the significance of this research, along with other related topics in today's conversation. Thanks for spending some time with us today, John. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you. Right back at you. This research on gene editing of livestock that you and your team are conducting at Washington State University sounds like it eventually could be a game changer when it comes to addressing the planet's anticipated need for a lot more protein on a global basis relatively soon. Can you give our listeners a brief description of what the process entails and in which direction you expect the research to go next? Absolutely. The intent of gene editing is to create changes in the DNA, precise spots in the DNA of an animal's genome in order to improve, enhance, alter its traits. So a lot of the traits that we go after with gene editing are to improve resiliency, or to improve the production efficiency, to improve the welfare of the animal, to improve their reproductive capacity, their disease resistance, etc. So in gene editing, we're looking for specific spots in the DNA that we can make little changes to the A, T, Gs, and Cs that will then enhance or improve or alter a trait and thereby intentionally trying to make the animal more efficient in the way that it produces edible products for human consumption. Now, the U.S. FDA recently approved that investigational authorization to Washington State to use several gene-edited pigs to create German-style sausages for human consumption for the first time. How important will the FDA ruling be in terms of next steps for what's been described as a high-tech form of selective breeding that seems to mimic more traditional breeding strategies on a much more precise scale? What this authorization from the FDA does for us is it gives us a blueprint of sorts on what we need to do next in order to scale this up for more large-scale authorization and implementation in a production setting. Right now, what we've been able to achieve is really a proof of concept from basic research lab discovery to developing a utilizable tool to then working and navigating through the federal regulatory process in the United States to get that tool into play in a production setting. So this is the proof of concept. It's the beta test, if you will, so that it gives us a blueprint on what we need to do as we go to scale up. And so if we can't figure out how to navigate that process, the regulatory process, all of the discoveries we're making in a lab, the tools we're building are really not going to go anywhere because we won't be able to advance into the public domain. So this is our first foray into establishing that blueprint and seeing what we need to do going forward. 
And so I think it's a really big deal for the future of implementing biotechnologies like gene editing into production systems in U.S. animal agriculture. And I would think it's important to remember, too, that the regulators are seeing this kind of activity for the first time themselves. So that process to get things either on a scalable level or approved for more widespread use may take some time as well. That's exactly right, Chris. The federal regulators are also trying to figure out exactly what the playbook looks like for authorizing and approving gene editing applications in food animals. So we're kind of evolving together from a researcher and from a regulatory perspective. Now, farmers and researchers already are familiar with nature's ability to continue valuable genetic-based positives in livestock, such as fat density and muscle, or resilience in specific environments. Is the gene editing process as easy to explain to those who may not completely understand currently how DNA works in nature? In other words, do you expect some pushback possibly down the line from consumers who may be wary about products that come from animals where gene editing is used? I believe it is as easy to explain as selective breeding is to explain. Selective breeding has been used by humans for tens of thousands of years since we domesticated livestock. And what selective breeding does, humans didn't fully realize this at the time, is it creates combinations of genetics. It brings together the genome of a female and a male to create offspring that now have a unique combination of genetics that otherwise wouldn't have arisen just through natural selection unless there is a human intervention of selective breeding. And so what gene editing is, it's a more sophisticated way of achieving the same thing. Selective breeding is kind of a messy process when it comes to combining genetics. But what gene editing can do is go in in a precise way, find exact spots in the DNA that we want to make a change, and we can make simple changes that could and do arise in nature that would have been selected for by selective breeding, but instead we're able to do it in one or two generations versus tens or 20 generations. Right. And so I believe there is a way to explain to farmers and ranchers how this technology can be a utilizable tool in animal breeding, animal production. Could there be some pushback from consumers? Of course, anytime a new technology is introduced into something that people are going to consume or use, I think there's always going to be some concern, and that concern is of the unknown. And I think a lot of the unknown right now in the general public is they don't understand how gene editing works, how DNA works to produce proteins that carry out the function and and drive traits. And so some of our goal is to create a narrative, start to have a new narrative with the public to provide an understanding, a clear understanding of how this technology works. And by doing so, I think the public and the farmers and ranchers will be able to make a choice on whether they want to utilize the tool in their production system or whether they want to consume products from animals that have been gene edited with a fact-based knowledge rather than a fear of the unknown. And I think that differentiation in terms of what consumers eat and what they buy, I was just thinking that there is a parallel because the horse racing industry has been doing this for decades as well in terms of getting the next secretariat or the next triple crown winner in terms of breeding specifically to get the good genes in the next generation. Absolutely. And some of it is the lens that people look through. I think in developed countries and high income countries like the United States, the lens that most people look through when they're thinking about what they want to eat 
is very different than the lens that people are looking through in lower middle income countries. So the appetite to adopt technologies and put technologies into food is different depending on the lens that people are looking through. And that lens is shaped by availability of food. And so in different countries and different situations, people are looking through a different lens. And ultimately, what our goal is as researchers and academics at universities is to provide fact-based knowledge about the safety and the application of these tools in food animals to the general public in a way that is palatable for them to understand. And in doing so, then people are making decisions based on fact and knowledge rather than the fear of the unknown. And of course, that would be palatable in every sense of the word. (laughs) So when and how did this research begin? And is Washington State the only bioscience facility in an academic setting that's working on this type of project? So for me, this work started roughly 10 years ago, and that was with the discovery that a CRISPR system, a gene editing system called CRISPR, could be adapted to be used in mammalian cells. And so we've been trying to do genetic enhancement, gene editing, gene modification in food animals for many years. And it was technically quite challenging with what would be considered conventional tools that involved recombinant DNA and inserting something foreign into the genome. And the outcomes were difficult to predict. And the bioethics of it were difficult to explain when you're putting something foreign into the DNA, something that could have never arisen in nature. Well, with the development of CRISPRs to edit genes, it was a game changer because now we could go in and make changes to DNA that could arise in nature. They oftentimes do arise in nature. We just don't screen millions of animals looking for them. And so now we had a tool that we could go in and and address those bioethical concerns, address the efficiency concerns, address the ability to precisely make changes to get a trait or a characteristic that we wanted. So that happened about 10 years ago. That's when we started working on developing applications using CRISPRs and gene editing in order to enhance and improve traits and characteristics of food animals. And so what we're seeing right now with this FDA authorization is a full circle, if you will, going from basic concept, coming up with an experimental concept, developing an experimental plan in a lab, carrying out that experimental plan, producing some animals, and then going through an authorization process to show that those animals are safe for human consumption. Which, of course, also lays the groundwork for future uh, pathways for getting these things approved relatively quickly as needed. Absolutely. I think this sets a precedence for how to navigate this federal regulatory landscape going forward for a lot of entities, whether it be an academic university or whether it be a for-profit company in the animal genetics space. It sets a blueprint. It sets a precedence for what needs to be accomplished in order to get federal approval or authorization to be able to put animals in the food chain that possess a gene edit or CRISPR modification. Terrific. Uh, Let's take a quick break for a word from this episode's sponsor, ComputerWay. Reduce labor costs with RoboScan by ComputerWay Food Systems. RoboScan is a pallet scanning system that replaces two workers per shift. RoboScan scans entire pallets within 20 to 40 seconds, scanning four times faster than humans. Each RoboScan cycle is two to three times faster than a shrink wrap cycle, meaning more production and less downtime. 
Reduce labor and contact ComputerWay Food Systems or visit mycfs.com slash RoboScan today for more information. Now back to the podcast. Now, John, it's been about only three years since the FDA approved food from a gene-edited animal to enter the human food supply from a commercial meat company. What are some of the limits you and your team discovered in terms of scaling this type of process to meet future protein needs? This is really the sticking point right now is the scalability. In the current regulatory system in the United States, we need to seek approval for groups of animals. And so we go through a process of assessing the safety of the gene edit to the animal, that it doesn't change their welfare, it doesn't change the animal's impact on the environment, it does not produce something in the meat or the milk that would be a new allergen or humans that are consuming the product. And we go through that whole process through for groups of animals. And then when we make new groups of animals, we need to go through that process again, and then again, and again, and again. And so right now, it's cumbersome to go through that entire process every time just a group of animals are made. So in thinking about scaling up into large scale production systems, we need to find a more streamlined, efficient, and refined way of getting approval rather than going through these one-offs or these investigational approvals. So on that note, exactly, addressing public misperceptions on what gene editing really means for the animals is likely to become a major issue if these techniques move forward among hogs, cattle, lamb, and poultry. Is there a game plan that includes answering consumer and regulatory concerns, even as this scientific process is refined in the lab and elsewhere? Yes, we are working to try to create situations where we can start to have a new narrative with the public about the science that's being applied using gene editing to enhance the traits of food animals. And that's a difficult thing to do. And so we're trying to work through various channels by which to have that new narrative with the public, whether it's through town halls in a local, regional, national way or whether it's going through the FDA authorization process to put these animals into the human food supply, because that opens up opportunity for us to be able to engage with the public about all of the things that we've done to ensure the safety to human consumption, the safety to the animal. It gives us opportunity to craft that new narrative. And so that is something that we're working to do. Oftentimes, as academic scientists, we're trained to carry out experiments. We're not really trained to engage with the public in a good way. And so we're kind of learning on the fly, but we're developing what I think are really effective ways to communicate with the public about the science we're doing and the safety. And I think those efforts will exactly match what I'm going to ask next, which is, do you think there may be a day when food from gene-edited livestock will need to be labeled in a way similar to other products that have been genetically modified, like feed? I don't think so, and I would hope that it doesn't. The reason I say that is the changes that we're making in the DNA with gene editing for a lot of the applications that we and others are developing for food animal production are making changes in DNA that could arise in nature. And so people are probably already eating products off of animals that have some of these changes in them. They just don't know it. Those are changes that that did arise in nature. We just haven't screened for them. And so if we start putting labels on food that has DNA changes that could arise in nature, I feel like we need to label all food as being genetically edited. So I would hope that we don't end up in a situation where we have to label food products that are coming from animals that have 
gene edits that could and do arise in nature. Now, this may be a little early for this question, but do you have any predictions on when or how this technology might become more universal or commercial in terms of time frame? And what entities most likely will be able to make this process more of a routine in the raising of animals for food? From a technical standpoint, we can apply CRISPRs right now. CRISPRs are quite easy to use in order to make changes in the DNA of an animal. Typically, we start with an embryo in order to make animals that are going to be breeding stock in order to transmit that gene editing change. Technically, we can do almost any gene edit we can come up with right now and produce animals. Getting it through the regulatory process, making sure that those gene editings are creating an application that would be useful in a production setting is where the research and development comes into play. And so I think that in a time frame wise, it's really set by consumer demand and it's set by the amount of time that's needed to navigate the federal regulatory process. And so with those two things in mind, I would say that a lot of gene editing applications that developers are going after right now could become available within a 10-year time frame. And the entities that are most likely to be able to make the process more of a routine and raising of animals for food are probably going to be seed stock. And so we're creating breeding stock that have the gene edit in their sperm and eggs, and those are going to be transmitted through reproductive processes to disseminate those gene edits out into large-scale production settings. So I think seed stock producers, whether they're commercial seed stock producers or whether they're university seed stock producers working through their extension and engagement offices in order to create those seed stock that have the precision gene edits that producers are looking for to be made available as breeding stock out into the production settings. Terrific. And finally, I suspect if there was a taste test, pretty much no one would be able to tell the difference between meat from a gene-edited pig versus regular pigs, although that might not be the case. Are there genetic factors that could raise questions with consumers who are expected to eventually buy these products? For the gene-edited pigs that we produced and the sausage that was made from them, we could tell no difference when we consumed the sausage compared to an animal that would not have possessed a gene edit. In fact, most people went back for seconds after they had their first course on the sausage. And so in terms of concerns on other genetic factors that could raise questions with consumers that would be expected to buy these products, I don't think that there are any concerns for genetic factors. The one concern, and this was addressed through our FDA authorization process, is that the changes in the DNA that we have made would produce a novel protein that could be an allergen for human consumption. But we went through a process of screening the DNA to make sure that we did not create any new combinations that would create a novel allergen that people would react to if they ate the product. Now, just say that that type of thing could happen anyway, just through selective breeding. At every single generation, every time a new embryo is made from a sperm and an egg, it develops different genetics and there's mutations that happen in that embryo naturally. All of those could end up producing a protein that someone may react to. So what we're doing with gene editing is not doing anything that could not happen in nature. Terrific. Thanks so much for sharing your insights with our Meeting Pod listeners today, John. And thanks to today's sponsor, Computer Way. And also thanks to our listeners for tuning in this week. That's a wrap. 
Until next time. Remember to tune in on Mondays to get the inside track on the people and the processes that drive the protein industry. Be sure to subscribe to Meeting Pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Meeting Place and Alt Meat magazines on social media, and be sure to visit our websites at meetingplace.com and altmeat.net. Thank you.